All right, for the message this evening, we are going to continue my series through the book of Galatians. So we have completed Galatians chapter 2, and we are moving on to Galatians chapter 3. So our text this evening, we will find from verses 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 3. The title of this evening's message is Perfected by the Spirit. Perfected by the Spirit. Beginning at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by, ha- or by hearing with faith, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you that we can gather together as your people this evening and here in Sarasota, Florida, that we can do so with freedom and that uh, you have preserved for us this, this great word uh, by which you communicate to us the gospel by which we are saved, the good news by which we are saved. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to this truth, that we would not let the world, our own sin, and the devil snatch it from us, but that we would hold fast to it. We would hold fast to the word of truth. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me this evening as I attempt to communicate the truths in your word here. I pray, Lord, that I would be able to communicate the same intention and purpose that the Holy Spirit had with inspiring this, and the Apostle Paul had when he wrote this. So I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. We pray for the Spirit of God to be in and amongst us, to open our hearts to your word. Help all of us, including myself, to be opened, our hearts to be open to this word, and that we would be conformed more to be like Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray for your time with us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul begins our text this evening again with a a rather abrupt and sharp rebuke, uh, very similar to what he did in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where he had called out an anathema upon those who had been teaching this other gospel, this this different gospel other than the one which they had received. And he starts out our text this evening by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, I want you for a moment to think of yourself sitting there in the Galatian church, and you are ready to hear this highly anticipated letter being read to you from your beloved Apostle Paul. And you hear the apostle say, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
I think I would, if I was in that congregation, I would probably sit back in my seat a little bit and wonder what is going on. Paul uses here in the, the first word here in our text, um, he uses the word anaitas, anaitas, which is translated foolish. The plural version is actually used here, anaitoi. But here he uses this word, uh, which is a little different than the most common use of the word foolish in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, this word is used six times in the New Testament, this word anaitos. Most often when the New Testament writers use the adjective foolish, they use a word called moros. They use that more frequently, in fact, uh, twice as much as they use this word. And uh, you might, that might sound familiar to you, because it's where we get our word moron from. <laughs> and uh, Jesus, for example, uses the, uh, the word moros when he refers to the uh, foolish virgins, you know, the five wise and the five foolish. He uses the word moros here. But I think Paul has an intention with why he uses this particular word, and he doesn't use moros. Uh, Anaitas uh, is, uh, comes from the, the stem, the root word of anaitas is noeo. And noeo means to perceive with the mind, to understand, to comprehend, to consider, to perceive, to think, to understand. That is what it, that is what it means. And this word anaitas puts the alpha privative, puts a negative in front of that, saying that they are not perceiving. They're not using their mind. They're not understanding. They're not comprehending. They're not thinking. They're being foolish. I think he uses this word instead of moras because it carries the connotation of being a willful and deliberate lack of understanding. Whereas moras carries the connotation of being incapable of understanding where anaitas carries the meaning of being unwilling to understand, not a lack of ability. And so I think the reason Paul uses this word here is he has hope for the Galatians. He wants to rebuke them, but he wants them to understand that their lack of thinking here is an unwillingness on their part. They are not reflecting back um, on what they had experienced. The other thing here that is stark is that he doesn't call them brothers or beloved. He says, oh foolish Galatians. He calls them what they are in the flesh, not his relationship with them in a spiritual sense. He does call them brothers in the book of Galatians nine other times. For example, right at the beginning of the book, he says, for I would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. A little bit later on in our chapter, he says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers. So he does refer to them as aldelphoi or brothers um, elsewhere. But here, he, I think, intentionally calls them Galatians, what they are in the flesh, because frankly, they're acting fleshly. 
They're acting according to their human nature and not according to the spiritual life which they have been given in Christ. One thing that might come to your mind, or it may not, but is that Paul seems to be unaware of the 11th commandment. You guys familiar with the 11th commandment? Um, it is a commandment well known in the modern church. It has hampered the church from addressing error, and it is the commandment, thou shalt be nice. And so much of the church today, because of this unspoken commandment, is unable to rebuke false teaching um, as the Bible and the apostles exhort us to do. I've, I've heard people even say, well, yes, uh, Jesus uh, sharply rebuked people, um, and so did the apostles, but that's not our place. Well, let's... Let's look for a moment to see if Paul exhorted um, the elders that would come after him to use sharp rebukes when necessary. Let's look at Titus 1.9. This is where he, to, um, to Titus, writes the instructions for elders. He says this about an elder. He says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. So we need see here that Paul is actually telling Titus that he must rebuke those who contradict it. He just, in a few verses later, in speaking of the Cretans, which is where Titus is actually living and ministering and establishing a church, he says... In reference to Christians are always liars, he says, this, is, this testimony is true in verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So there is a necessary place for this. We see the same exhortation, Paul, to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.20. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In 2 Timothy, he says in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebroke, rebuke, <laughs> reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we see that there is biblical precedence for sharply rebuking error, in particular error that has eternal consequences. The reason Paul is so worked up is what the Galatians are toying with has eternal consequences. One is the gospel and the other is not. And if they continue in this, they no longer, as we're going to look later at Hebrews chapter 10, that, chapter 10, that they no longer have a sacrifice for sins. He goes on here in Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Wow, that's a strong word to use. This word, by the way, is only used one time in the New Testament. It only appears once here in the book of Galatians. Uh, Thayer's gives a definition of it, to bring evil on one by feigned praise or an evil eye, to charm, to bewitch one. 
Uh, Strong says to fascinate by false representations, to bewitch. Vine says to bring evil on a person by feigned praise or mislead by an evil eye and so to charm, bewitch. Fascinate is connected. Paul is saying here, who has charmed you and fascinated you with evil intent? The word that he uses here is a rebuke upon both the Judaizing false teachers and the Galatians themselves. He's rebuking the Galatians for being fascinated and charmed by these people. And he's equating the Judaizing false teachers, these these pseudo-Adelphoi or these false apostles, these false brothers. He is accusing them of engaging in something similar to witchcraft, something equal to that. I mean, most likely, the uh, Galatians probably looked up to these false apostles as being great spiritual leaders. They knew the scriptures well. But here Paul is saying that they are bewitching them. So it is a very strong rebuke and judgment uh, by the apostle on both the Galatians and upon the Judaizers. He goes on in that verse. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is reminding them about how vividly he had painted the gospel for them. How he had shown them the intricate details of the work of Christ, his crucifixion. He reminds them of their belief and faith in his message by which they had received the Spirit of God. And he's taking them back in their experience. And he's reminding them of this, about how they had been ashamed of their sin and they had seen Christ as their only Savior as their only opportunity for eternal life. He was the only means. That is what he is reminding them of. Surely also, just as the Corinthians, when they had received um, the gospel, for example, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he reminds them that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And I believe if you look down at verse 5, you jump down there, it says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? So most likely miracles were done. As we see in the book of Acts, most of the early uh, Gentile believers uh, were accompanied by speaking in tongues, Uh, Miraculous events came with this proclamation of the gospel. Um, And so he is simply reminding them of what had happened in their midst when the Spirit of God had come amongst them. That there were miracles, there were signs. And they had received these with joy. But now they are straying away from this. He asks in verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the crux of this text. This question here, 
How did they receive the Spirit? Did they receive it? Receive the Spirit of God by hearing the, with faith and believing? Or did they accomplish it by works of the law? The Galatians know this because they remembered their experience. He's appealing to that. One question we would have to ask both ourselves and also the Galatians is if you began your faith in Christ through the Spirit, at what point did it transition to your works? A week in? A month in? At what point, if we have been perfected by faith in Christ, at what point do we now have to remain perfect or become perfect by works, by works of the law? At what point of time does this transition takes place? The point is, is it doesn't. There's never a transition. The perfection that comes from faith alone in Christ alone is an eternal perfection. It is one that lasts forever, one that can never be lost. It is not enhanced by our works, nor is it decreased by our lack of them. The Apostle John, in writing in his prologue, says in verses 12 through 13 of John chapter 1, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice here that it is God who gives life. It is God who brings about spiritual life. It is not the flesh that contributes. John, uh, Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. None. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Luther says that this is the difference between the law and the gospel. The law never brings the Holy Spirit, but only teaches what we ought to do. Therefore, it does not justify us. The gospel brings the Holy Spirit because it teaches us what we ought to receive. That is the difference. The law is necessary. The law is good. And the law is good for the believer as well but it adds nothing to our justification because the law can never justify. The law only condemns. I want us to take a moment to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading actually verses 1 through 27. But this is a parallel passage to our text this evening. And it ends with a text in verse 26. 
that may have troubled some of you at some point. Let me just read it first. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wow. Just that verse by itself is really troubling, right? I mean, if we go deliberately sinning, have, have you ever done an undeliberate sin? No, we, when we sin, we will to, to sin. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles in context, to read it consistently with the rest of Scripture. So let's take a look at verse 26, but let's read what comes before. And let's also look at how this correlates to our text this evening. Beginning at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. This is such an important, important verse. In the law, they were but a shadow. They were types for the real substance the antitype, the true form of these realities. The law was but a shadow of those things. So why would we go back to that which was a shadow? We want to and should want to experience the true form of these realities. It goes on, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The writer of Hebrews' point is these sacrifices occur over and over and over repeatedly. The fact that they have to occur repeatedly indicates that they never perfect those for whom they are made. It can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So notice the writer of Hebrews here is saying that Old Testament sacrificial system actually reminds you of your sin. It reminds you of your enmity with God. It doesn't cleanse you from that. In verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, it, it, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Notice these Old Testament quotations are pointing out that God is ultimately not pleased with the Old Testament sacrifices. Those burnt offerings and sin offerings, he takes no pleasure in them. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, 
That is the first covenant, the old covenant, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice the comparison to the repeating sacrifices, to the one time sufficient sacrifice, one sacrifice made by Christ. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, quoting from Jeremiah 31, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. Therefore, brothers, now this is now the conclusion of this great demonstration of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ and the insufficiency of the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see here, before we get into verse 26, we see here the writer of Hebrews, through the whole book, but in this passage even, is saying that in the New Covenant, you have a better mediator. You have a better priesthood. You have better promises. You have a better sacrifice. And he goes on here in verse 26, but... Or four, if we go on sinning deliberately, sinning deliberately against what? Sinning deliberately against this truth. Sinning deliberately against this revelation of a better covenant. If we sin against that, if we, if we uh, go against that after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a Fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if we have received this gospel, this new covenant of Jesus Christ being better than all of it in the past, and if we go deliberately back to that old covenant and try to stand right before God by means of it, then there remains no sacrifice for your sins. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3. He's saying that if you go back, O oh foolish Galatians, and you go back, then there is no sacrifice for your sins. 
You have nothing. Now, the Galatians and the, the Judaizers should have known well enough, just from their Old Testament scriptures, that one is not justified by God by obedience to the law. I mean, there's lots of examples, um, even examples of Gentiles in the Old Testament. I could think of uh, Naaman, the Assyrian, in 2 Kings 5. Did, was he healed by keeping the law? No. In fact, it appears that he truly believed in God after this because he desired to worship and take some large buckets of dirt back to his home country so he would have something of Israel yet. And he said, please forgive me so when I go with the king that when I bow down uh, with him that please forgive me for that because my intention is not to bow to that idol any longer because I will make sacrifice and offering only to God. Notice that it, he doesn't say anything about him becoming circumcised. He doesn't say anything about him following the law. But we see that he is justified without keeping the law of Moses. We see, for example, also the prophet Jonah. He goes to the Ninevites. He preaches them to them that destruction is coming. We don't read that they all became circumcised and started following the law of Moses, do we? It says they repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God saved them. He did not bring the destruction upon them because they had actually repented. And so they have these examples in the Old Testament that they should well be aware of. So if the Gentiles were justified without the law and received the Holy Spirit by faith, by believing when the whole law of the Old Covenant was still in force, why should it now be necessary when the Old Covenant has grown old and obsolete and been put away with that we should go back to that law as a means of righteousness? Paul also continues in verse 4, if we go back to our, our text in Galatians, We go back there. He says in verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's, he's reminding them of what they had suffered for the gospel of justification by faith alone. He reminds them that they were persecuted, that they were most likely ostracized by their family and their communities. What a wretched thing he is saying to them that it is after having suffered so much for the sake of Christ and the truth to now lose peace with God by attempting to be perfected by the flesh. In verse 5, he says, Were the miracles done among you the result of your works or by hearing with faith? What did Jesus say, that you could move a mountain after you keep the law for a while? No, 
Jesus said, if you have faith, mountains do not move as a result of our work, but rather our faith in the one who does the work. Now, we may be tempted to look down at the Galatians, but do we not have a like nature such as theirs? I might have to say, oh, foolish Sarasotians. I know that maybe we're not tempted to specifically go back and do Old Testament ceremonies or anything for that matter, the moral law. But what about those checklists we might create? Maybe in our own mind, maybe we write them down. Well, I attend Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday night. In fact, I go Sunday evening and Wednesday night. Not like those other Christians that only go Sunday morning, right? I read and pray every day. I hand out gospel tracts. I volunteer at the church. I contribute to the offering. Isn't it easy for us to go back to the flesh as the means of our peace with God? We can be just like the Galatians. We can be just like them. Checking off our religious checklist to measure how we are pleasing to God. The only thing pleasing to God is His Son. And only by being in Him can we be pleasing to God. There is within us now that we are believers. We have this old man, as Paul calls it, the flesh. But we also have this new spiritual life within us that can overcome the flesh and that we can have victory over it. But that flesh is still there and it always wants to be the means by which we are righteous. What Paul's dealing with here is also the age-old confusion that has always been in the church. And that is merging and confusing those categories of justification and sanctification. All false gospels do it. Every single one of them do it. Remember back in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, where we went into the word... Uh, dikaiu, um, the word justification. And that justification is that one-time forensic legal application, imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. That happens one time. That happens the moment we believe. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to our account. Your sanctification, however, is the continual post-justification, spirit-guided work of God conforming you into the image of Christ. It's different. It's related to your justification, but it is not the same thing. All who are justified will be sanctified, most assuredly. If you have been justified in Christ... 
you will experience sanctification, and it can be painful at times. This is the important thing, though. Sanctification does not add anything to your justification. It adds nothing to it. Being justified also does not mean that you are sanctified. It means that you will be sanctified. The thing to understand is justification is external, forensic, legal, and imputation. And sanctification is internal, personal, and conforming. Two different things that we must recognize in Scripture is distinct. I want us to think about this particular question. Think about this. If we say in our hearts that we can please God in the flesh, that we can add to our justification by our works, whether that is ceremonial, moral, traditional, a checklist, whatever it is, then we are claiming to be as pleasing to God as his own son. I want us to think about that. His own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, came in the flesh. He is the only one who has ever pleased God in the flesh. He's the only one that has ever done it. We can only please God by being in his son. The Galatians were ostensibly telling God that they were as good as the Son. They could be perfected in the flesh. Only, only Jesus himself has done that. No one else will be able to accomplish that. Adam tried it in the garden, in perfect conditions, and he failed, but our Lord did not. Paul kind of puts the icing on his argument, the brilliant logician that he is. He goes back to that verse in Genesis 15:6, in our final verse here in our text. He quotes from Genesis 15:6. Um, Paul quotes this frequently. He does in Romans 4 as well. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. That's where actually we get the word imputed. Counted is, uh, is the word imputed. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. And this is before the Mosaic law was ever even given. He believed God. Now, we can see that Abraham was a sinner. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan before God came to him. We even see after this that he lied that Sarai was his wife and actually allowed her to go into Pharaoh's harem instead of actually trusting the blessing that God had given him, God had said that, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, right? Isn't that what he said? He repeats the same sin again with Abimelech. And then, of all things, he tries to accomplish in the flesh what God had promised. 
He doesn't rebuke his wife when she suggests Hagar as an alternative. He does it. He commits adultery with Hagar to attempt to help God through the flesh to accomplish what God had promised. God, did God accept Ishmael as the promised son? No. No, he doesn't. And Sarah actually had a son when she was 90 and Abraham was 100. And then he tells Abraham, he says, go and sacrifice your only son. Your only son. Abraham has another son, but God doesn't recognize him. One is a son by faith, and the other is the son of the flesh. We can see by Abraham's willingness to offer his son that his faith was genuine. In fact, I love it. He got up early in the morning and he left. It shows that the writer of Hebrews tells us that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But he believed. His faith did falter at times. We do see that. But he is the father of our faith. And we have a faith just like Abraham. A faith that by which we are counted as righteous. Paul also quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, just down in verse 11 of chapter 3 here, where it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. I think he quotes this in Romans 1.17 as well. The righteous shall live by faith. So we start by faith, but we continue to live by faith. The Spirit continues to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of Christ. We don't make ourselves into the image of Christ through the flesh. We can only accomplish it through the Spirit. The Spirit of God, we are dependent completely upon Him. We must get on our knees and beg God and pray that the Lord would conform us to be like Christ. Not create ourselves the checklist and when we check it off that we're there. No. No, we can only do it by relying on the Spirit of God. That is the only way. That is the only way. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this evening that you have given to us. We thank you that you have given us this word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to it, that we would hold fast to our first love. We would hold fast to that, that first faith that we had by which we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he saved us and he gave us his righteousness. Help us to always hold on to that. Hold on to that and not our own abilities, and our own talents, and our own fleshly things, Lord, but that we would rely on Christ and on him alone through all of our life, that we would live by faith, that we would walk by faith. So we ask for your blessing upon each and every one of us this week, that you would go with us and help us to live and to walk by faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.